a Radio 191 FM podcast. So Madison, this exhibit took all by and by. It's 75% I would say covered or composed of these pipes that you've arranged on the wall. Uh, what pipe is your favourite pipe to hit? <laughs> uh, Zach, thanks for being here. My favourite pipe is this one and I will play it for you now. Now, what about that pipe makes it your favourite? Just the, the tone it strikes? Yeah, so I was definitely deciding that based on sound. I think it rings out really nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, the pipes have different, different resonant frequencies because they're installed across like quite a variable surface. So you've got different ones that sound altered depending on the foundations of the wall and the concrete behind it or whatever. This one just is in the sweet spot. Really... Really clear, you get some mm. cool overtones. Mm. Um, if I was picking pipes based on the drawings on the pipes, mm-hmm. maybe I would have a different answer. But this one today True. is sounding pretty slick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now these, these these pipes, they're composed in an array to metonymic the, the tide, correct? Correct. Based on that lens of analysis, <laughs> what would be your favourite pipe then? Oh, okay. <laughs> so for reference, yeah, the pipes that are installed here are a work called Toko Toko Toko. Um, they are basically a tide chart for the month of December, so that was when the work was first installed. So in one way, they're sort of an archive of the tide at a very specific point in time. Um, they are one-day cycles, so there's two high tides and then a few low tides in between. My favourite pipe in relation to the tide itself is probably, probably the highest tide pipe that is behind us currently mm. and it is arranged in a way where the drawing on it is the very peak of um, Kapukatomahaka which is Mount Kargil. Oh, cool. So there's drawings all over the pipes and the two high tides are kind of like reference points to the two mountains on opposite sides of the harbour mm-hmm. um, and I spend a lot of time around Mount Kargil and really admire that mountain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I like that I like that particular high tide pipe because it's got that mocha, which is really sweet. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's yeah. good. It's a gorgeous moment. Yeah. Um, now, you spent time in Whakaoho Rahi, uh, Broad Bay, on a residency for this, this exhibit, Toko By and By. How did your Western zoology science background and Māori influences inform how you observe and understood this coastal area mm. and its various species? Mm, it's such a good part of like, I think about it a lot. Um, I guess a lot of my zoology or like Western science studies have kind of influenced the way that I record information so I do a lot of like field recording work um, and a lot of that is through drawings and journals and kind of like strategies I suppose of observation so a lot of that is based on observing environments and seeing patterns in a more data type sense um, but in recent times especially in the last few years um, it's kind of evolved so now it's like I'll use those methods to survey a space to get recording and to get data of an environment, but then I'll also be thinking about the actual whakapapa of that environment um, and the ways that ecology and whakapapa are actually kind of actually the same thing and letting the connections between everything get recorded and then translated. So, like, all the drawings that are on these pipes um, are actually records of, like, the intertidal zone around Broad Bay, around Whakapapurahi, but the harbour in general... Um, but the way that they're installed is so that they occupy like every part of the tidal cycle. So the actual drawing surveying part is done quite like methodically and regularly in a way that you might collect data, but then 
when you translate the drawings and you put them onto the surface where they start to flow back and forth, and that's kind of a more Tao Māori approach. Mm-hmm. So trying to invite people into seeing both at the same time. It's very, very uh, dualistic kind of yeah. approach. Eh? It's yeah. great. Now, on this residency out at the Broad Bay, uh, you spent a lot of time reading the thoughts and conversations of your kaitahu tipuna pātahi. Mm. Had you read these before, or were they the first time you've ever like, studied mm. these archives? Um, yeah, the, the bit that I was reading in particular was one specific interview from her time on Te Taipotini, so around the West Coast. She ended up being there and living there um, for a longer period of time at the end of her life um, after being in Otago and kind of being part of that first wave of intermarriage and settlement of Europeans in Otago. So this is really a significant quoted all this interview that was transcribed. <clears throat> um, and it's recorded in quite a few different books about that era. So actually the book that I first encountered it in was called Invisible Sight, and that's by Angela Walhalla, um, and that is basically about intermarriage within the South Island and the agency of kaitahu women in particular, um, who had a lot of power to choose who they were with and kind of you know, disrupt or in some ways even accelerate the settlement of Europeans in Pākehā into the Otago area because of that structure. Um, so that book is in our family, like pretty much any of the descendants of the woman in those books will have at least one copy of that book. So Invisible Sight, you know, I'd already known about that for a long time. We've got random little photocopied bits and tiny chapters and handwriting and all sorts of records within our family that we would look at. And a lot of them are from Pātahi because she happened to be around at a point where writing was picking up, where like the use of English language was picking up. Mm -hmm. And she was a person that could communicate in both Te Reo Māori and Te Reo Pākehā, so um, yeah, you get all these really valuable records. So I knew about them, but I hadn't really tried to find all the different primary sources of that Google until I was in Broad Bay, um, which is mostly a time thing. It's hard to find time to really delve into written research sometimes when you're wanting to be making stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was the first time that I'd read like the full, full interview from the original diary of the miner who recorded it. A guy called William Martin, so he wrote down this big, big, big life story, basically, from Pātahi. Um, and I just spent lots of time writing it out and kind of looking at her words and even reading it out loud and recording it or walking around the harbour and reading it in relation to where she was and where I was. So it was the first time I'd really delved into it in relation to the harbour specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Um, and how, I guess, that and doing this exhibit in mm. general would have, would have affected your relationship mm. with Te Ao Māori and your kaitahu whakapapa. Mm. Um, in what ways has it affected your relationship it's with been, these two things? Oh, it's, it's great stuff. I feel like every project I do now, there's like more that you can gain from it personally, but actually more that you can bring to your whānau or like other kaitahu people, people in the city. Like, yeah, and I think that's the most interesting thing about doing work that does have a Te Māori intention is that um, you start to invite people in and let people connect in ways that you thought was really individual, you know. Um, so that's really cool. It's been really great for me to reconnect with the harbour and the ocean. Like, when I went to that residency, I realised I hadn't actually swum in the harbour for, like, five years. Mm. <laughs> I was like, that's crazy to just have this entire body of water and, like, have all this whakapapa and history there and, like, not even to have gone in the water. Because mm. um, I've been just living inland and, I don't know, I always thought of myself as a forest person. So I've got a whole new respect, I guess, for what the harbour has provided in the past and kind of the modi that it has still. Um, yeah, I 
am really interested now in kind of that resilience, like these entities and these figures in Tao Māori or in Kaitahu Papa that are really important as resources, but also like as identities in their own right. So now I'm kind of thinking a lot about all the waterways that extend, you know, across the South Island, and yeah, it's huge. I have so many projects now that are all kind of feeding off from that experience of understanding harbour in multiple ways, mm-hmm. in a deeper way than I had previously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, super fulfilling and just really cool conversations with people that I've never met who maybe also had family that lived around Otago in that time or have really similar family histories, like actually a lot of those intermarriage histories are across the board, like a really common experience in tons of my tahu, whakapapa, so mm-hmm. yeah, you just get to experience and hear so much about other Maitahu stories that you maybe wouldn't have? Oh, web of knowledge. Yes. Like web of knowledge. The living web. <laughs> Take that, internet. <laughs> We've got some drawing workshops and an artist talk yeah. coming up very shortly. Uh, how do you think these workshops... Sorry, workshops. <laughs> Land traps? <laughs> how do you think these workshops will, will change the workshop perspective on the harbour? Mm. And what will you be discussing at the artist corridor? Ooh, okay. Yeah, so the first thing that we're doing, this is a series of public programming for talk by and by. First one is field drawing, so we're basically just going out to the harbour. We're going to go to McAndrew Bay because it's a cool easy spot for everyone to get to. Um, and we're going to do a bunch of drawing exercises. We're going to practice making lots of marks. We're going to practice looking at the ocean and trying to see how we could record it in different ways, um, whether that's the tides themselves or if it's more about looking at the edge of the water. You know, Basically just opening up our skills in observation, which is partly from that science background, like kind of figuring out how can we record data, like personal data and ecological data, but also it's kind of about, it's kind of life drawing, you know, it's like how do you actually just practice seeing stuff and recording in a way that feels accurate to you, which I think will hopefully change people's idea of the harbour itself and maybe any other environment that they might take those exercises to. Um, even if it's not from a Tao Māori sense, like it's really empowering, I think, to be able to record something that feels accurate to your own observation or your own experience. So that's what we were focusing on with the drawing workshops, just practicing, looking at stuff and finding cool ways to record it. And we're all going to have our own little matching field journals, so everyone will have the same little books to read. Yeah, you could even pick stuff up if you want, collect some shells, people like doing that. Um, the artist talk, that's going to be pretty casual, quite informal. Um, it'll mostly just be an opportunity to have like a shared discussion. Um, maybe we can play the work together. But I'm going to talk with Simon, who's the current director of the Blue Oyster, and we're just going to chat around the development of the work and probably like a lot of the similar threads that you're thinking about with mm-hmm. your questions, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and hopefully whoever's around, we can just chat. My favourite thing about artist talks is like just hearing other people's thoughts on the work. I could talk about my own work for ages. It's way more fun to hear other people come up with their own associations and share things that it reminds them of. So, yeah, that would be really nice. Mm. And then right at the very, very end, the closing day of the show, which is February 18th, we're going to have a series of performances. I'm inviting a few different musicians, contemporary musicians, noise musicians and artists from Porti Porti um, to play the work together. So that'll be like a noise performance. Yo, <laughs> like the, uh, the trash orchestra that was at Nun Gallery. <laughs> Yeah, so that'll be really cool. That'll be at the evening for the last last ever outing for the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for now anyway. 
Speaking of last ever outings, this is the <laughs> last ever question oh. for this very interview. Oh my gosh, thrill. Uh, I'm curious, because, you know, coming up with something of this originality, it must have taken a long time. Yeah. And also, I mean, going through those interviews with Patahi, mm. it must have been... It must have been very difficult in some, mm, in some reading yeah. some of this stuff. What what kind of difficulties did you encounter in mm. crafting this work? Mm. Yeah, right. It did take a long time. So I was lucky enough to be the resident in Broad Bay through Blue Oyster at the very start of last year. So in theory, I had pretty much from January to December to develop this work, mm. which is incredible. Like, very rare to have continuous time to the like you know months and months a whole year's worth of time just to think through those ideas um but it was challenging and I guess yeah it was it is intense reading that cordial and just thinking about where you are now as a descendant and kind of what the struggles were at the time you know like Patahi had a lot of challenges in her life shout out to Edwin Palmer who's the European ancestor that um you know, also is why I'm here today. He's he's in the uh, he's in Toy he's in the Settlers Museum. You can go and click on his little digital face uh, and read about what he was like, um, <laughs> and you get a sense for the struggles there. Like, um, yeah, Patahi lost her daughters; they were taken away from her, basically to be assimilated into what was at the time like a very strongly growing half caste community of bicultural children in Otago who were basically raised or tempted to be raised as Pākehā completely. So there's a lot around there around, yeah, being divorced from Te Māori and kind of occupying those two zones in that really volatile era. And it's, it is sad, it is sad. I cried a lot reading her interviews, just thinking about what her life was like. And it was also challenging to find the right materials and to find the right approach to hold that feeling you know like the show itself isn't like trying to replicate her interviews or into her words or anything it's more about trying to build up a sense of continuity within the harbour because you know despite all those things that she went through she actually still was holding on to all these pathways and forms of knowledge and a lot of that revolved around our waterways and our harbour um, and actual kaitahutaka in a way that couldn't be quelled you know like it's still resilient so it's kind of about yeah enjoying the tide and trying to find things that are actually quite joyful and interesting. So it's kind of hard to take that and translate it into a work that tries to maybe help thinking about that. But I think it's worked out. Like, the best thing ever is when tamariki, like, when kids are in here and they're just like, like, going crazy. Like, they instantly kind of understand the approach, you know? Like, it's an, it was really cool to come up with something that can be, I guess, like, conceptually have got a lot in it but also just be super simple in lots of ways like really it's just like a big thing instrument a big instrument that you can play and you can look at the drawings and you can kind of think about the harbour and you can run around the space and yeah enjoy the, how it reflects off the metal or just yeah finding those really good simple ways to have the joy along with the kaitahutaka along with that practice of observing and honouring like the kōrero so yeah, that was the hardest thing, was like finding the right mode, like the right balance. Um, and also it just took ages to make. I had to etch every pipe individually, so they all have their own drawings on them, which were applied, and then etched in the same way that you would make like print plates, so copy etching. Um, 
And if you want to do that in a way that doesn't create too much waste product, you have to do it in a very slow way. So you have to use a solution that's getting gradually less concentrated every single time. So the yeah. first etch might only take two minutes, but by the time you get really far in, it can be like hours of etching <laughs> these pipes. And some of them are very tall. So like for yeah. December, the tallest high tide was 2.1 metres. So there's pipes that you draw over 2.1 metres of pipe and then etch it for another however many hours. So yeah, just in terms of time and commitment, it was big. Very methodical. <laughs> yeah, very methodical. Definitely. Super systematic. You just got to, yeah, once you got all the drawing done, it's just like, I just did that for months, like a couple months straight. It was just etching pipes every day. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, I guess the cool thing is once it's, uh, once they get the new, a new work in here, you can take these home and put them to your walls. <laughs> Yeah, I can't wait. My flatmate's super excited about it. Um, <laughs> it's going to be the entire hallway. <laughs> the roof. Yeah, and we play them every night. That's great. Yeah, I'm composing a symphony, so um, that's, that's the goal. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks yeah. for the idea. <laughs> no worries. All right, thank you so much, Madison, for joining us. been absolutely fantastic. <laughs> That was a Radio 1 91 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.